Welcome to Remarkable Retail Podcast, Season 7, Episode 7. I'm Michael LeBlanc. And I'm Steve Dennis. In this episode, we're live from strangely rainy Las Vegas at Grocery Shop 2023 in the Vantage Podcast Studio. Our special guests for a venture capital powerhouse panel are Ashley Hartman, managing partner at Bluestein Ventures, Kevin Parakatu, partner at Plug and Play, and Matthew Nichols, general partner, Commas Ventures. Yeah, it's really great to have such a diverse perspective. I think venture capitalists often bring a really unique perspective because they get to see so many different kinds of deals, see where interest from entrepreneurs is going, mm. uh, be able to try to estimate what some of the potential might might be. So having yeah. having these guys both, uh, we've got a couple of them that are really pretty early stage. Mm. Uh, Matt's a little bit a little bit later stage. So yeah, it's a really good glimpse at what's going on in the technology world. Yeah, it's a nice mix. Uh, I, I think listeners are going to really enjoy it because we've got a mix of expertise in grocery and, as you said, startup. And listen, these folks are, you know, they got to put their money where their mouth is eventually. Right. Uh, so they're not, they're, not just pon- they're not just pontificating about trends. They actually uh, start to do investments and all that stuff. Um, so we're here at, uh, at Grocery Shop, and, uh, you know, it's been a busy couple of days. And yeah. I was thinking about, you know, some of the general themes I heard. I heard, um, you know, no surprise to anyone. Retail media networks sure. still very, uh, still very popular, and it uh, comes up in pretty much all of our conversations in one way or the other. We did a right. few. Uh, we, of course, AI. You can't uh, go you too can't far. Spell with retail <laughs> without AI. <laughs> uh, exactly. Yeah, I like that. I never thought of it that way. That's very good. Um, what else? I, I, you know, the, what's different, I think, a little bit from last year's uh, grocery shop is, and this is not unique uh, to America, but uh, is grocers and the brands trying to figure out how to deliver value and price to a consumer that's paying more and more for their food and making sure that uh, they, can, they can, you know, in some ways find ways to extract out of the value chain costs so they can continue to drive yeah. costs downwards because, you know, we're in a highly, fairly highly inflationary environment for a whole bunch of, of reasons. So I think those are the kind of the big themes I picked up. Any, anything that you picked up uh, in addition to that? I don't know that I have anything to add. I think what's uh, really exciting, because we've got three episodes in the can, mm-hmm. we know that we're going to touch on uh, those themes and more uh, from the episodes we're going to release, well, this one and then uh, the next two. Uh, all right. Well, let's get right into oh, the news. Oh, hold, on. Oh. hold on. Oh, oh. That's not all. Oh, Did you know that this is our... Third year anniversary episode. Ah. I'm wondering what you got me, by the way. <laughs> Happy anniversary, I guess. <laughs> Thanks, dear. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, wow. Yeah, we started this venture the uh, last week of September of 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also, because I got this kind of time, went and looked at what our first week downloads were, <laughs> and I compared them. <laughs> answer not a lot. Yeah. And uh, compared them to what they've been this past week. So we've, we've grown 7x wow. since that very first week. So it's kind of fun. It's great. Listen, it's been a fantastic journey, and, and I'm looking forward to the rest of the season. And, and uh, it's, been a, it's been a pile of fun. Yeah. So thank you for going on this likewise, journey. Likewise. Yeah. Uh, all right. Now let's get to <laughs> the news of the week. Some of the stuff's a little more anodyne, but uh, you know we've been talking. Uh, last episode, we talked a little bit about uh, the overall economy and, and – uh, when we were recording, we were wondering what the Fed was going to do with interest rates, and there were some IPOs on the horizon. So right. what, uh, what transpired this week, and what do you make of it? Yeah, well, this is pretty much the as-expected section of, of the news, <laughs> uh, because the Federal Reserve did not raise interest rates, as expected. Mm. And they, um, they basically signaled they were pretty optimistic about the proverbial soft landing, mm-hmm. 
uh, indicated, I guess, that they pretty much were planning on one more interest rate increase. So not quite done with mm. interest rates, mm. but uh, the end, I guess, is in sight. And then, yeah, on the IPO front, as expected, uh, Instacart went uh, public on, I guess, Tuesday, mm-hmm. and Clavio today, as we're recording this, yeah, right. and uh, they appear to be pretty successful, got a nice pop, and so they're unleashed into the public markets for better <laughs> or worse. <laughs> More cowbell. All right. Um, you know what I didn't realize is Shopify actually had a piece of the action in Clavio. Oh, really? Uh, I was reading. They, they, were, they, took a, uh, they were an active investor, in, and that's been a great partner for them. So they make a little bump up on, this, nice, uh, nice. on the IPO, which is nice. Let's talk, about, uh, let's talk about loss prevention. It was an interesting article and an interesting statement from Lowe's uh, CEO. Basically, I have the solution, <laughs> at, le- at least in my format, which yes. is the big box format. It doesn't work for all formats. But he said, I'm just going to hire more people and train them well. Right. And, and it's been interesting because there's been this conversation around, boy, loss prevention is out of control. It's a big problem. And there's some sense that they're kind of using, some are using that to kind of cover up some not so great results and say, listen, we got a big problem right. here. Yeah. And there's no doubt it's an issue, sure. obviously. Yeah. Um, but it, it, what, do you, what do you make of it? Do you, I mean, you, you and I were talking about this. You're like, maybe we should just have more people on the floor. Yeah, I mean, we've, uh, and we promise we're not going to talk about loss prevention every week, but it seems like we've it's been three or four of the last yeah. episodes, but yeah, I feel like uh, Marvin kind of spilled uh, spilled the tea, as the kids say, or <laughs> said the quiet part out loud. Is which is, oh, I think, like a lot that. of people realize it's uh, labor's part of the issue, and so many companies have been cutting back uh, on their workforces, and it just turns out that having more people around often discourages. But yeah, it's not; it's a bit hyperbolic in that it's clearly not right. the only thing, yeah. and as you say, it's not going to be the answer. For everybody, but I, I, I've long suspected that this was part of the problem, and mm. so just in terms of validating my own opinions, <laughs> it's good to have a CEO. At, I mean, that's really ultimately the most important thing is that somebody says I'm right, as opposed to whether it is right. Let's go to the wobbly unicorn. The wobbly unicorn segment. Uh, so let's talk about uh, Stitch Fix. So um, I think you alluded to this last week. So this is kind of a continuation. Uh, we saw some numbers out uh, under new CEO Matt Baer. What did you make of them? Yeah, this is the first report since uh, Matt Baer, who's the prior chief digital officer at Macy's, uh, took over. And, uh, I mean, I guess this is another, should put this in the as expected, hmm. uh, in the as expected section, because as expected, uh, the numbers weren't very good. The uh, revenues were down 22% for the quarter year over year. Their um, uh, revenues per average customer, RPAC, is one of my favorite little hmm. acronyms, were down 9% or was down 9%. And they lost $28.7 million, which is about an 8% negative operating margin. Um, but positive EBITDA, adjusted EBITDA, which I think we've talked about a few times. A lot of these companies use that as kind mm-hmm. of a measure because there's so much uh, equity stock compensation and that really yep. skews the numbers. Uh, and positive cash flow. Uh, they've got a strong balance sheet, so they are not in any kind of imminent uh, imminent trouble. Um, they're doing some things that sound quite positive uh, in some respects. They are seeming to really kind of an edit to amplify kind of thing like we talked about last (laughs) week, which is focusing on a narrower set of customers. Mm -hmm. They announced they're exiting the UK market. They've taken a number of uh, cost reduction initiatives, consolidating a couple of their um, uh, distribution centers, I guess you call them. Hmm. So, uh, you know, that hasn't hit 
uh, yet. So some bold moves, uh, mm-hmm. and you know he sounded an optimistic tone, which I guess you have to do when you're four months on the job. So uh, <laughs> so uh, you know really right. really something to watch. But I w- I would say among the ones that have stumbled quite a lot, um, they're maybe a bit more stable and. We'll see if this helps them move in the right direction. The market seemed to be a little indifferent to the moves. I mean, the stock didn't go up, down. It kind of went sideways, right? And they're off, what, right. 90 plus Yeah, percent. I mean, the stock is down. Uh, I mean, they're, they're literally a former unicorn. Um, so my guess is the market's really taking a wait-and-see attitude right. on this. And there's just been so much noise in the whole sector that it's, yeah. it's kind of hard to get super excited about any one, one player, even if they're signaling the right things. Um, it's early. Let's talk about holiday. Um, the early read on the holiday season as in how many people retailers are going to employ. Uh, I saw some news from Amazon said they're going to hire 250,000 and they're going to bump up wages, but there's some other news, uh, that came across that is less positive. What do you, what do you make of it? Yeah. The, um, big HR firm challenger gray in Christmas, which is nice to have Christmas in your name if you're doing a holiday, uh, Labor forecast. They uh, they do this survey every year where they predict how much hiring we'll see, and they're predicting that um, hiring is going to be pretty anemic. Uh, the lowest level we've seen for holiday uh, workers, retail holiday workers, since two thousand and eight. So that's not two thousand and eight, not eighteen. Two thousand and eight, and you know, and we'll get we'll get to some forecasts in a second, which fight against that. A little bit, mm-hmm. but you know, as we've talked about, it, we've been kind of seeing the slowdown overall in retail. So if you just kind of penciled that out, yeah. you'd see well, maybe there's good reasons to take a, a cautious tone. Uh, a lot of pressures on costs, these kinds of things. So on the one hand, that doesn't seem too surprising, but we'll talk about it in a second. Some of the forecasts for the season suggest well, maybe maybe you might be a little bit shorthanded, and maybe you better listen to Marvin and make sure you have enough people in the yeah. store before <laughs> you lose everything. I, I saw this uh, economic. Uh, News, you know, there's this pent up savings during COVID on in uh, in America and Canada. You know, they, they calculated it in a multiple, multiple billions of dollars that just weren't sure. spent. People didn't, didn't go on vacation. They didn't do this. They didn't do that. And, and this stat was saying in the U.S. they pretty much figure that's exhausted now, and that's been a big factor driving sales since you know let's call it post COVID. Uh, so what, I saw some stuff from Deloitte, uh, and I've seen some other things about holiday forecasts. What do you what are you hearing? Well, so we, uh, yeah, we got uh, a few forecasts, actually one hot off the press just before we got on mic. So Deloitte's holiday sales, and and I think for the most part, when you see holiday predictions, unless they're called out separately, they're, uh, they're um, the months of November, mm-hmm. December, and January, just, just for clarity. And Deloitte uh, predicted a range of between 3.5 and 4.6. Uh, the hot off the press prediction is from our friends at MasterCard. Mm. They're looking for a 3.7% increase. And then um, also our friends at Bain & Company. I mean, everybody is our friend, really. Yeah, yeah we're, friends. Except, we're friends with everybody. You know, except Macy's, maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah. But our friends at Bain... Mark Andreessen. Predicting, and Mark Andreessen, yes, for sure, Mark. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> now the more, more I think about it, I'm thinking more people that are probably... Aren't my friends? So <laughs> Maybe that's our next. Let's our, get back. <laughs> our next episode. People who People, aren't our Steve friends. Steve is pissed off <laughs> through the podcast across the last three years. A retrospective. No, um, Bain and Company is predicting three uh, percent, so a bit more conservative. So you know, this is this would be whether you pick the low end or or the high end. This would be above the trend that retail has been running. 
the past six months or so. But I think you can make the argument that people are going to, you know, prioritize having a good Christmas, Hanukkah, et cetera, for their families, and they'll maybe forego some other things just to make sure. You know, so when push comes to shove, you might see more spending concentrated on the holiday season than you might otherwise. Um, Hmm. At the same time, if the economy kind of continues on this slowing down uh, pace we've been on, then you could argue certainly that uh, you would expect actually the numbers to be under 3%. I don't, you know, A, I don't have a working crystal ball. Uh, B, my crack forecast team has taken the month <laughs> off. So I've got, I've got no additional information on this. If I had to pick a number right now, I'd say three-ish. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, um, you know, that's based on gut, gut feel in my gut, weather vein. <laughs> gut feel. I mean, I, I, I've been hearing the same thing. It's an interesting study of consumer psychology because retailers I've talked to said, well, you know, uh, people have kind of got the travel bug out of their system, so to speak. They right. did a lot of traveling this summer yeah. or a lot of dining. And all these things are starting to trend downwards, not upwards. And as you said, maybe if 2024 is going to be a tougher year, let's let's finish this year. Go out with a bang. <laughs> <laughs> Go out with a bang. Yeah. I got some room left on the credit card after uh, after traveling to uh, to Europe or whatever. I don't know. Like you said, I, you know, it'd be interesting to see where NRF lands. They tend to be on the upside of positive. Right. And I guess the last comment I'd make at 3% with inflation running at about 3 to 4%, it's kind of flat. Exactly. Um, right. Flat is the new app, right? I think flat, I think retailers would be happy with flat. I think they're happy the bottom isn't falling out of the market. Yeah. Uh, people are still going to spend, and they just got to calibrate their, their way that way. Yeah, and I, I guess I think fundamentally, and I don't think there's any reason that we're likely to see a very big change in the next couple months, is that the job market in the U.S. is Full just so strong. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. you know, People, I mean, that doesn't mean everybody's got a ton of discretionary income to spend, but having that many more people working just puts that money yep. back into the economy. So yeah. I think I think there's a floor there as long as unemployment stays you know, well under 4%. We actually hear a little bit of that on the panel coming up. So without further ado, uh, let's get to a great panel recorded uh, in our beachside podcasting studio here at Grocery Shop in Las Vegas. Well, we're coming live from the Vantage Podcast Studio at Mandalay Bay from our remote podcast studio, a.k.a. the Beach Cabana. And we have a stellar lineup of three venture capitalists who are going to tell us about what's going on in their, in their world. Uh, and why don't we just jump in first with having everybody, uh, each of our panelists, tell us a little bit about yourself, personal professional journey, just briefly, your firm, and I guess we could kind of give a flavor for stage of investments, kind of uh, focus, maybe a few tidbits from your portfolio, that would be great. So uh, Ashley, would would, uh, you start us off? Great. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm Ashley Hartman, managing partner of Blue Stein Ventures. We are an early stage venture capital firm investing in the future of food with a mission to make the food system better, healthier, and more sustainable. We do so by investing um, across the supply chain in food, Anything from goods on the shelf, how goods get to the shelf, how goods are made, comes to life in four categories of investments. Um, One of those is food tech. For example, one of our portfolio companies is Meaty, which is an alternative protein. Mm. Another one is digital technology. That's tech that powers the industry um, at the back end of um, the food space. One of our portfolio companies is a company called Four Kites, which is a freight visibility technology. 
Next Gen Commerce is the third um, bucket we invest in. So that's how does food get to the customer in this new omnichannel world, rethinking grocery, food service, restaurants. A couple of our investments in that bucket are Foxtrot, which is a modern convenience mm-hmm. store. Sure. And then um, another one is Factor 75. They're a prepared meal delivery company. Um, they are no longer a portfolio company because they scaled and sold to HelloFresh. And then the last bucket, uh, which is a smaller part of what we do, is consumer brands. And um, really newest, healthiest products you see on the shelf, uh, one of our portfolio companies is one called Vive Organic, which is a two-ounce um, immunity-boosting wellness shot. Mm, nice. Invest very early in a company's life cycle, so seed is really our sweet spot, but we'll go seed to Series A. Terrific. Well, and I think we're stepping up a little bit in the life cycle with, with Matt. Matt, can you tell us about you and your firm? Sure. I'm Matt Nichols. I'm a partner at Commerce Ventures. Uh, we're a 10-year-old venture firm. Uh, focus on commerce technology. So all we invest in are, we call enabling platforms for commerce, which is really retail tech and fintech, or infrastructure for retail and financial services. Uh, I lead all of our retail tech investing. Um, companies like Narvar and Forder, Tulip, Theatro, Site, Gravango, Trove, Kevl, sort of, sort of a whole host of technologies that serve both digital and physical retail. Um, my background, I've been a venture capitalist for almost 20 years, Morgan Stanley, Highland Capital Partners, and now Commerce Ventures, uh, but I also spent five years running a direct-to-consumer e-commerce brand, so been a CEO and a, a brand builder before getting back to the dark side you, of venture capital. You had a real job. I did have a real oh, job nice. for a little I, while. I used to have, a real, too hard. I used to have <laughs> a real job, too, back in the day. All right, excellent. Uh, Kevin, how about you? Awesome, Steve. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm Kevin Barcato. I'm one of the partners at Plug and Play Ventures. Uh, we are the world's largest venture firm in terms of headcount. We're about 750 people. We manage about 250 million AUM. Uh, we have 200 or so investors and do about 200 or so investments per year. Our commerce portfolio is, is pretty broad. Uh, it covers Honey, Rappi, Customer, uh, several others across the commerce stack. Um, I specifically lead that portfolio. It's about 65 companies in total. My background, similar to Matt's, was an operator right out of college. Um, ended up starting a company focused on custom royalties and selling that business. Mm-hmm. And then got into the world of venture investing right after. So, actually, let's talk about uh, the this, this side of your uh, kind of input side of the business. We're seeing a lot more uh, from my perspective and in innovation in the food manufacturing sector. You mentioned uh, cultivated products, but, but things that uh, take a lot of skill and money perhaps to scale. Um, what's, the, what's the climate out there right now and what are some of the challenges? Um, great question. It's, uh, the climate is a little dry like Las Vegas. Um, you're, you're definitely seeing um, a pullback in venture capital for unproven technology, for sure. I think any company, food tech or otherwise, that wants to scale right now has to think about capital efficiency. Mm-hmm. That's just the name of the game. And so make sure every dollar that you're spending is doing the most for you. I firmly believe that this is like a discipline that you know one should build early in a, in a, in a company building side. So that's... Um, it's not, uh, you know, it's music to our ears that this is kind of, there is a little bit of a pullback in the industry, but of course, food tech is heavier on the CapEx and there's no way around building a company in the food tech space without heavier CapEx. But I think there was a lot of wishful thinking over the past few years and hoping that many of these novel products would be able to just scale um, and hit price parity at some point. Mm -hmm. Um, And Wired actually just had an article about Upside Foods and how they're manufacturing a chicken product using two liter rollers, which is a process that's just completely impossible to scale. Mm. So I think cultivated meat companies 
as you mentioned, that were built on taking pharma equipment and practices and hoping that it was just going to magically get to, um, you know, a margin structure that makes sense are going to have to rethink you know, sure. their manufacturing practices. So what we're seeing getting funded are ones that are taking new approaches to the process around building in food tech. How do you come to market in a way that's quicker and also more capital efficient and one that actually gets you to a margin structure that makes sense? So for example, we just invested in a food tech company that's manufacturing a novel ingredient with a process that relies on traditional fermentation, i.e. beer equipment and brewery, and has engineered their ingredient to have much higher yields. So they first started with where do they want to achieve, which is we want to get to prosperity, we want to be able to scale this technology, and then they worked backward from there. Right. Um, and how can you partner in order to get that done instead of just dumping a lot of CapEx in um, an unproven process? Sure. Maybe just a quick follow-on. What, what's your point of view on the consumer side? Because it seems like, I'm thinking like with Beyond and some other places where maybe the, the market's not quite as vast. And I don't know if that's related to the price points or whether that's something about just consumer inherent interest in some of these products. Is that, you have a point of view on that? Um, I do have a point of view on that. And it's a great <laughs> question because I think that when you're talking about, you know, plant-based actually being successful, you really have to match price, taste and texture and nutrition. Hmm. And I think that's when what's missing from the industry so with innovation across that triumvirate, we call it, I think you're going to see a lot more success with plant-based products. I think right now we're in the kind of valley of despair where there was a lot of promise and overhype, you know, activity around the space. Sure. Um, and you're going to see some pullback from there. But I think the fundamentals, as long as you have those fundamentals in your mind, we'll get to a place where we're going to continue to grow the market. Because I think consumers, if you look at even Gen Z consumers, care deeply about sure. environment and health, yeah. and that will continue to um, build the market over time. It just won't be as right. fast as we thought it was. Yeah, it's demographics are destiny to a certain degree, right? Uh, Matt, so we've known each other for a while, and in some cases I've learned that some deals I try to bring your way were not fit <laughs> for various reasons, but, uh, but I did get to learn a little bit about not only the focus you ha have from a stage perspective, but particular areas, and I didn't automatically think of you as a, as a food or grocery guy, so explain yourself. Why are you here at Grocery Shop? Yeah, so as, as a venture firm that focuses on commerce and, and me focusing on retail, obviously grocery is a huge percentage of the overall retail space, right. uh, and I think has a set of particularly unique challenges that are different than traditional retail. So we, we see a huge amount of opportunity for technology to power digital grocery um, and grocery problems in the same way that technology has been you know, ad addressing physical retail and, and e-commerce for a long time. So we, uh, we, we probably made four or five core bets in grocery technology, ranging from um, multi-level multi goods-to-person fulfillment systems, frictionless checkout, retail media networks, um, and sort of in-store visibility, all of which are sort of core tenants of, of problems that I think grocery retailers are solving today. So okay. a lot, lot of opportunity. Great. Um, so Kevin, uh, I'm going to ask a question of you, but I think maybe have Ashley and Matt quickly weigh in as well. But, uh, you know, as you talk to retailers, brands, you know, CPG companies and so forth, what, what, what are you hearing from them? What are their, their burning passions and needs, whether it's, say, on the efficiency side or effectiveness side or branding side? What, what's, what's kind of that short list of yeah. things you're hearing about? No, I mean, and, and for context, we work with about 50 brands, retailers, and CPGs. 
Walmart, P&G, Nike, et cetera. Uh, we typically work with their C-level, their SVPs, and try to identify their key problems and introduce them to startups. So we're seeing kind of a variety of technologies that are being requested. I think number one that we're seeing across kind of the retail end uh, is kind of workforce efficiency, underemployment, how they can more or less solve those challenges. Sure. Um, I was trying to avoid one day without saying it, but I think every single one of our retailers are asking about generative AI applications. I was going to say, I know what you're going to say. Uh, yeah, like it, it doesn't, I don't think I have a day in, you know, in the last six months that I haven't said that phrase. If you say uh, metaverse, though, you have to leave, just so you know, that, that's one of the rules of the podcast. That was the six months before that. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> Um, but I think where, where retailers are going with that is what kind of process automation they can do potentially with that, what kind of potential kind of chat level interface can they do with customer service. Lastly, I would just say on you know, anything cost optimization as it comes to grocers, it's a laser thin margin industry. Sure. How are you going to, you know, where our grocers come to us most is where can I reduce costs, weight, food waste, et cetera. Right. Not necessarily what are new revenue channels. Even though it's interesting, that's where a lot of times cost optimization is its big importance. Interesting. Ashley, do you have a quick uh, take on that? Yeah, I think all those are, you know, definitely resonate strongly. From my side, a couple that I'd add are one, connecting offline and online behavior is really important for both brand, brands and retailers, which leads me to the second point, which is around personalization. And so kind of the marrying of those two and how do you really personalize your offering to the customer is where retailers and brands are you know, looking to invest behind. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Matt? I'd probably focus on two things, although I would agree with many of the other comments were made earlier. Um, I think one is looking at visibility into at the store level, really understanding what's happening at the store, what's happening on the shelves. You know, despite all of the efforts in that area, I would say both retailers and, and brands are largely blind uh, so I think I'm sort of imagining a world where retailers and brands knew what every product was on every shelf uh, for every, in every day. Mm-hmm. And if you had that visibility, what could you do from improving the Instacart experience so that when you actually purchase something online, it's actually delivered to your house? Mm-hmm. Or flexing the supply chain because you know what's out of stock. And I think a bunch of need in sort of increasing the visibility to what's actually happening in the store on a day-by-day basis uh, is, is sorely needed. And I think the other area that everybody's looking at, especially with the, the, the with, with Instacart going public, is looking at the power of just the the, the ad business. Sure. Um, and in a super thin margin business, having a very large high margin business, uh, sort of fundamentally changing from dollars that used to go towards in store towards online, and that those dollars really being both the size of that pie and the allocation of that pie being up for grabs, I think it will make it will be the difference between being profitable and being wildly unprofitable, mm. whether you can grow that pie and which part, how much of the pie you can get as a retailer or a brand or an intermediary like Instacart. Great. Thank you. Um, Kevin, AgTech is one of your platforms. Retail is another one of the platforms. I think the modern consumer, the people who are behind us on the beach, they wouldn't recognize a farm these days compared to what they, they might think of it. Now, you've got these macro influences. I'm trying to triangulate this back from AgTech to retail. You've got climate change, you've got geopolitical challenges, the Ukraine war. How do you think about that and where do you see the innovation happening to put all this together onto the grocery show? Yeah, and another one of our platforms is actually our sustainability platform mm-hmm. uh, where we work with this organization called the Alliance to End Plastic Waste. Uh, and through that organization, through our retailers, we've kind of really come to understand 
the technology implications of scope one, scope two, scope three kind of emission standards that are being set and how that ultimately affects the technology stack. Mm. So for grocers, I think when we looked at it, about 30% of all emissions, when you look at the entire value chain, comes from uh, you know the, the various parts. So let's say the, the farms, the kind of emissions that come from that, the transportation, et cetera. Of that 30%, the actual stores themselves are roughly about kind of 7% or so of, of overall emissions. The grocers themselves, you know, in the kind of big emissions issue is not necessarily what we've seen, um, the big pollutant, Mm. but because they're the primary buyer, they can really influence Mm. that scope two and scope three across up and down um, their own scopes. And and we've seen that historically, right? That Walmart makes a decision about incandescent light bulbs, for example, and changes the industry, right? That, you know, forces the industry to change and adopt and plastics and all these things are at play as well, right? Yeah. So, I mean, exactly. So, I think what a lot of our grocers are doing is kind of a basic NPV calculation is, is more or less, is this sustainable technology also good for the business? So, an example right now that's something that's, that's become uh, more fathomable is electric trucks, right? So, we see Pepsi mm-hmm. and CPGs as well as the grocers adopting different Tesla electric vehicles as well as the ongoing Volvo fleet and several others. Our portfolio company, Einride, is, of course, playing in that space and several others. But then there's all these other technologies that I think grocers still haven't tapped that could be interesting for them, both as a business, but also as an emissions player. All right. Ashley, uh, talk, let's talk about food innovation. And, and you know, you, you mentioned a couple of things that I think a lot about, you know, cultivated meat or lab-grown meat and how to scale such a business like that. I sit back and I think of the framework and where, within with it, it's all happening. And that's government, uh, to some degree, society rules. You know, in Canada, we're trying to say, how do we be more self-sufficient on fresh fruit? Because we import 95% of it. So it, do you take that into consideration, watch that kind of environmental outside impacts on what you think about? Yeah, absolutely. Government regulation plays a role in how we look at things, um, particularly, as you mentioned, around food tech, for sure. We're market-backed investors, so we think first, what is the market opportunity happening? And then where do we want to place our bets from there? We're very thesis-driven and think about kind of where is everything going in five, mm-hmm. ten years. And part of that market opportunity is government regulation. The other part is changes in consumer behavior and then changes in technology. And so changes in consumer and technology happen a lot faster, usually, than the yeah, government yeah. happens. And you see the government kind of lagging behind those. And so we first look at kind of where is the consumer going, where is the tech going, and then how is the government adapting. And then related to that is government regulation and the threat of it is often enough to spark innovation. Hmm. So talking about kind of what Kevin was mentioning with scope two and three emissions, you've seen a lot more... um, uh, interest in from Canada or the EU around reducing emissions and really investing behind sustainability. Yeah. And there hasn't been as much in the U.S., but I think that the retailers and brands are still thinking deeply about how do we do that because, A, the consumer is demanding it, and, B, I think on the other side they're seeing that the government might be doing it right. down the road. When, not if. When, not if. Exactly. So, for example, on, you know, federal land, there's a mandate out to reduce single-use packaging by 2032. That's a long time away, but Mm. that (laughs) comes faster than we know it, and it's also sparking innovation kind of across the supply chain. So Mm. we've seen a ton of innovation, for example, on sustainable packaging, even though it hasn't been required. 
um, around government regulation. So there's kind of reusable systems like dispatch or re-company, and then there's also a lot of innovation around compostable solutions. Like you yeah. just saw Walmart um, develop their own compostable um, single-serve uh, yeah. cutlery. Yeah, interesting. Were you surprised how fast the FDA approved cultivated meat? I was. I didn't think it would happen, you know, till 2030. I, I was surprised. Were you surprised? I wasn't surprised because I'd seen what they did with Impossible and Heme, mm. and that was pretty quick. And we didn't have, I didn't have any concern that it was not going to be safe for a consumer to eat. I think, though, we're still a little bit behind on, you know, for example, I referenced that article about upside foods. So yeah, yeah. what they got approved was the product that they can produce in a two liter roller, right. not the product they're going to be producing in yeah, yeah. supposedly 500 liter, 50,000 liter bioreactors. Yeah. So you still need to go through the same regulatory process in order to approve that. Mm-hmm. So it's still going to be a long time before we're going to see cultivated meat on the plate, whether a consumer wants it or not. Mm. So it's not it's not as fast as we think, but I'm I, I think it's it's a good sign that the government's being a lot more flexible in how we're um, solving how problems we're, yeah. and addressing stuff. Um, Matt, let's talk about e-commerce and grocery. So uh, it, you know we there was much uh, much buzz about the great leap forward during the COVID era. E-commerce was going to skyrocket ten years in the future. I think to some degree that was true. I don't know about ten years in grocery, and we went from small small single digit percentages to. We're still in single digits, I think, but it moved significantly forward, and the waterline didn't recede. Mm-hmm. The waterline stayed it was stayed where it there. But you're starting to see some folks slow the roll a bit, right? Kroger's rolling back Ocado a little bit. Consumers seem to love this experience of going into stores. How are you thinking about it? How are you processing all this and intersecting that with what you're looking at and, and where, where, where the puck's going to be, as we Canadians would say? <laughs> yeah, so I think if you look at, you know, look at the, specifically at the sort of the warehousing investment, I actually think the bigger problem was not overinvestment, but actually investing in incredibly expensive platforms that didn't flex. Mm. It, when, when the COVID demand sort of changed up and then down, these systems were so fixed and so expensive, you couldn't move them. Mm. So I think it was actually the lack of flexibility in the And cost. they worked really well at scale, At, right? at scale. They worked um, really well. Which, which you know, we're in a very dynamic market for demand, and having something that doesn't move uh, with, that, with that dynamism is, is I think, is, is a challenge. Um, but I think ultimately, I think grocers can't afford not to invest. Right? You have a big and growing part of your business that's online grocery that for almost every grocer is unprofitable. And you can argue about how fast that's going to grow, but I think it's, un- it's pretty unquestionable that it is going to continue to grow. And having this weight of an unprofitable part of your business is really challenging. So I think they're going to be forced to keep investing, but they'll have to find new solutions. So for example, in the sort of the micro-fulfillment space, you know, we think that there is a next generation of much less expensive, um, actually one is presenting at the startup pitch competition later today, much less expensive, uh, more flexible goods-to-person systems that will solve this issue of picking, which is one of the biggest cost drivers. Um, so I think they'll have to continue to invest. And so that's point, sort of point one. I think two is trying to find ways to convince consumers to shop at a different cadence if they want to shop for online grocery. There will always be a small set of the hmm. Instacart customers who, want, who are willing to pay for my groceries in two hours, but I think to really open up this market, we'll have to almost like train consumers to say, hey, why don't I take one grocery delivery once a week, <laughs> bigger basket sizes. So I think even just changing behavior will actually change the economics and make it less expensive for consumers and more profitable for, for retailers. Um, and the last point you made about was, was, was physical grocery. I mean, it, it is also not going to go away. 
Um, I think you have a certain set of customers who will never be able to pay any sort of premium for someone doing the work for them. And I think there's also something magical about going to they your like physical it, right? store yeah. and choosing right. your meats and choosing your, your, your produce. But I think what we have to do is solve the parts of that process that are broken. Interacting with your butcher about the meat is not the broken part. It's the waiting for 15 minutes in line. Right. That's the problem. Yeah, so yeah, I yeah. think we're super bullish on solving that in frictionless checkout to make that in-store experience as seamless as online, but as magical as the physical store can deliver. I think that's the key. So, Kevin, let's go back to you. Um, just kind of continuing on the, this overall, I guess, kind of omni-channel grocery experience. Uh, one school of thought seemed to be that really automating the checkout experience was, was going to be a, a winning value proposition. Uh, but I think we're seeing, at least my personal experience is, in fact, at recently in an Amazon Fresh store that I went in, I saw that they had added regular checkout. Um, but often we see lots of empty self-checkout lanes. Um, so I'm just kind of curious, where, where are we going next? Uh, you know, you mentioned the push towards automation. So self-checkout sounds great. Trader Joe's saying they're never going to do it. I always say never is a long time, but they don't seem to be uh, willing to do it. So what, what, what's, where is this starting to sort out, and what's the implication for where grocers should be thinking about investing in, in your portfolio? Yeah, no, and I'm glad you brought up the, the self-checkout thing. I think, what, six years we've been looking at self-checkout technologies. Like, I think it's like the biggest one in the space. I remember studying with Standard and then... You know, there's Grabango, iFi, et cetera, and there's all kind of different styles and tweaks to to how they're kind of approaching the market, whether it's computer vision or weight-based sensors, a mix of both, et cetera, or the Amazon Go Store, I think, being the most expensive of those kind of iterations. Um, and the challenge to your point is, you know, at the store, I think what we're seeing is the historical kind of NCR, you know, the classic vendor ones that are probably 150000 or so to the layout, and then there's maintenance and so forth on that. And I think fundamentally why consumers aren't using it, and I think Costco is a good example of that. We yeah. work with them and, you know, they have these self-checkout, but most Costco's these days have the people that scan for the self-checkout. So right. what, yeah. I'm exactly. not really home, sure what the home, cost efficiencies are. Not grocery, Home Depot has yeah. been doing the same thing. Exactly. Yeah. So I think the issue is it just user experience. It's poor, right? If, you, if you're trying to, let's say, buy a bottle of wine, someone has to come over and that, that person's busy, you had to wait five minutes, et cetera. You have a lot of items, you don't know where the barcode is, et cetera. Like, I think the technology that's being studied and showcased at technology conferences like the ones that we're at are a couple years out from being the ones that we actually see in the store. And right now, the user experience of the customers is fairly poor for large basket values. For one or two items quickly, you can do it. But for larger ones, it's, just, it's not there yet. Sure. Mind if I weigh in on that one? No, go ahead. <laughs> so I, I, so I, I generally agree with you, but I, th- I think about frictionless checkout in two categories. One is the self-scan. Um, which is what you were discussing. And I think the challenge there, because I agree with you, is that you actually aren't taking out labor. You're just taking the labor that used to be done by an associate and making the customer do it, right? Which is a shifting of labor, and sometimes I'm willing to do it if I'm really in a hurry. But my belief is that the, um, the, the, the end solution, the really exciting solution is is the sort of vision-based where no one has to do the scanning, right? The scanning is done as you pull the item off the shelf. It's a much harder technical challenge and has taken some time. I think, I believe we're actually at that point where it's becoming real and you're seeing it play out and actually work. But that's the thing that actually makes the experience magical rather than a shift of labor from right. you know, retailer to consumer, which doesn't feel all that good sometimes. We're coming up on our time. I thought maybe we could just uh, end with each of you giving some advice to 
wannabe entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs in motion that are looking to get funding uh, from you. Uh, I guess you each deal with somewhat different stages, but uh, what, what would, if you had to say one thing that really works well when approaching your firm and maybe one thing that you tend to see that's really not super effective. So kind of one start, one stop for entrepreneurs when it comes to approaching your firm. Ashley, you want to take that on? Sure. To start? Um, I'd say the, the one thing to do is to treat it like a relationship. We invest really early in seed stage and we're investing in the founder. And it's not necessarily a sales pitch. It's really a relationship building exercise. And that's what we want to see is really how you think, not exactly what you're going to do and if you have an ironclad plan. It's kind of how do you think about building the business and are we aligned because it's a long journey. And then on the don't do, I'd say um, know your metrics and don't give me anecdata, which is the marrying of anecdotes and data. <laughs> so <laughs> like that. All right, we're still on that. <laughs> still on that. Matt, you want to try yeah. On the start side, I would say really try to convey how your solution is going to change one of the fundamental issues of grocery. When I think about the companies that we ultimately pass on, it's not usually because they're bad companies or bad founders. It's probably because the problem they are solving isn't either so pressing for grocers or so big that you could build a big company yeah. that it ends up being an interesting solution to a small problem. So I right. think focusing on how do you tell the picture of this is an enormous problem and that you will build an enormous company by solving that enormous problem is probably the big thing to, to hmm. do. Um, and think on stop, you know, we've gone through a, a crazy market environment. And I think even worrying about where things were two years ago as it relates to size of your team, valuations, anything. I think just thinking about, and we as investors have to do the same thing, think about what is today in 2023 look like and focus forward on what do we need to build today and try to ignore the craziness of the last three years, which distracted us all. So. Well, just as an aside, we're recording this uh, the day that Instacart went out, uh, which I think is viewed as at least, I mean, who knows? I say this on mic and then you know I'll discover something terrible happened, but they were up about 30%, I believe, at... Uh, at open, so that looks pretty good, but at a valuation that is what one third or something of or one quarter of what they had a couple of years ago. So yeah, it's uh, market conditions <laughs> can change. Uh, so uh, all right, let's wrap up, uh, Kevin. What's your perspective on this? No, I mean I, I think the biggest thing that we see and, and agree with both of your advice is we often see tech entrepreneurs that come from let's say either side of the coast and don't necessarily know the stakeholder that they're pitching to. Yeah, so right. they're like, it's kind of like the Mark Andreessen software will eat the world kind of mantra. And Don't get me started on that yeah. one. That's <laughs> one of my... <laughs> so, and what we often see is, you know, they fly into HQ and, and speak to the CEO and kind of say how our technology is going to destroy everything and replace everything and we're going to be 10 times cheaper. Uh, without maybe the context that that CEO is probably a store associate 25 years ago, um, and that, you know, that person has kind of a nostalgia to the way the systems are run and mm. so forth. So yeah. it's, it's one, to Matt's point, are you really solving a huge problem that they're facing? And then two, are you messaging it in a way that, uh, that you know, says that we're going to augment your, your business instead of replacing your business? Yeah, very good. All right. Well, we covered a fair amount of territory in uh, just under about 30 minutes. So I want to thank the three of you for joining us, and uh, we wish you a successful conference. I know, uh, I guess, Ashley and Matt, you guys are going to be 
together in a session. And then Kevin, I think right after that. So I'm looking forward to those and uh, have a good rest of your conference. Thanks for coming on the Remarkable Retail Podcast. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. It's great. If you like what you heard, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform so you can catch up with all our great episodes, including our recent interview with Carrie Baker, President, Canada Goose. And be sure to drop us that five-star review where you listen to your podcast. It really helps us spread the word. And I'm Steve Dennis, strategy and innovation consultant, keynote speaker, and author of the best-selling book, Remarkable Retail, How to Win and Keep Customers in the Age of Disruption. You can learn more about me at stephenpdennis.com and be sure to follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. And I'm Michael LeBlanc, consumer retail growth consultant, keynote speaker and producer and host of a series of retail trade podcasts, including this one. You can learn more about me on LinkedIn. Safe travels, everyone. <laughs>